at the Exile on Bad Street. And this is your host, Chris Zoner. And yes, we are back talking about wrestling from the 80s. That's right, the video collection of the man who was, like I said before, the first guy I've ever bought wrestling tapes from online. And I bought quite a few of them over the years. And always glad to have him on to talk about any type of old wrestling. He is the legend, John McAdam. John, welcome back. Uh, Chris, thank you for having me on. How have you been? Been good, man. Yes, we uh, took a few months off because we normally like to record on Saturdays, and college football has been taking uh, hold of our lives uh, in the past few months. But we're in the bowl season, and uh, yeah, we actually had a Saturday to knock knock it out, so uh, we're back. <laughs> we are back, you know, um, and I hope I'm not letting the cat out of the bag. I mean, and I actually want to talk about this. A day. Uh, we're recording on December 29th, 2018, and this is going to be the last Saturday that there's going to, that there's college football for nine months. So let's all hang our heads for a minute, and <laughs> then we'll have some fun. It'll be here before we know it, though. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> September, yeah, September will be here. So, you know, uh, not soon enough. <laughs> Definitely not soon enough. I know, man. I know. But at least we got some good. 80s wrestling to talk about as uh we uh, ended last show in volume four so we'll begin with volume five and uh this is one of my favorites that uh of this collection uh that i own from john and because uh, there's a lot of hodgepodge of stuff that mainly f- focuses around a lot of 84 but some other stuff involved as well but a lot of great stuff so let's go ahead and get started all, all right. right um the first match on here was Ricky Steamboat versus Ron Bass. This would have been from uh, one of the Crockett shows. Uh, may have been Mid Atlantic. I couldn't remember. But JJ um, Dillon and Black Bart get involved, and Ricky Steamboat ends up tearing JJ's pants off, revealing Uh-oh. ladies' garter and stockings. Now, oh, hold on. JJ, they're, they're his clothing items, and he said that they were orthopedic support for uh, a, a sciatic nerve problem he had. <laughs> I love that excuse. <laughs> that was always – that tripped me out the first time I saw it was that excuse for that. <laughs> I, I always thought that was just an absolutely great line. And at the end of the day, it's like, you know, no, you're a weirdo who wears ladies' undergarments <laughs> under your pants. <laughs> yeah, um, this is this is before Starcade, so this isn't that period eight of JCP where Dusty is starting to get his hooks in, and yes. the Florida crews already come in, and you know you watched a lot of JCP from that year. Um, you definitely could tell the difference once Dusty got in there, couldn't you? Oh, yeah. Dusty put a wrecking ball through what was the traditional Mid-Atlantic territory. And, you know, when I think before that, when you think Mid-Atlantic, you think Blackjack, Mulligan, Wahoo, Flair, Valentine, Piper, uh, Paul Jones. And in a way, that era had ended on its own. And Dusty needed to bring the promotion up to date. Yeah, Steamboat leaves and comes back. This is when he comes back from his retirement in that era. Wahoo's turned heel. So your lead heel is Wahoo McDaniel and Tully Blanchard. Um, Ivan Koloff and Don Carnoto are having their issue where Carnoto's turned face. And, of course, Dusty's brought the Florida crew in. Although, by this point in time, Wyndham and Rotunda and Mulligan have already left. But, uh, 
but yeah, JJ, JJ was definitely a different type of manager than what Mid Atlantic had seen in recent years. And uh, Rob Bassett Blackboard, I thought, did a good job as well in their roles. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting watching the early Dusty run because it's different from what already happened, and it's different from what would happen, you know, the next year. Dusty finding yeah. his way. I mean, you're right. Dusty continued to bring in and develop new stars. This was just the beginning. I was actually um, – we had, were having a discussion on a Facebook group about Black Bart, and you know, <laughs> he was a really good worker, especially for a guy his size. And I really think at the end of the day that everyone would have been better off if they had not split Black Bart – and Ron Bass, and just kept them as a tag team as the Texas Outlaws, and just you know they make them a regular tag team. I mean, Bart didn't last very long in Mid Atlantic, and he wound up going back to Florida, where I know, I mean that that territory was dying. Yeah, I mean, you could definitely see Bass and Bart together as like you know having a little run against the Rock and Roll Express. Yeah, I mean, against any of the tag teams, but I was thinking the exact same thing. Have a feud against the Rock and Roll Express. It would have worked. Uh, kept JJ, keep JJ with Bass and Bart as long as you can. And, you know, like I said, everyone would have benefited. Bart, as soon as Bass left, they had no idea what to do with Bart. He was just another guy at the bottom of the card. Atlanta Atlantic champion. That's what they did when that belt was like at its low point. Yeah, exactly. You know, when it was, he was one of how many guys had had championships in that promotion at that point, and they were going to start adding more championships. <laughs> that was pretty crazy. Yeah, you had in the singles belts, you had the world title, U.S. title, TV title, national heavyweight title, mid Atlantic heavyweight title, and the world junior heavyweight title. I think I think they still had the national tag team titles as well. Uh, they had just basically went defunct. And then the U.S. tag oh. title starts up in the summer. So, yeah, you know, they basically yeah. take, they take the place. So two sets of tag belts. <laughs> a lot. A lot of titles. Yeah, a, of a bit much. Yeah. Speaking of somebody that was a bit much, Roddy Piper's next with a series of Hyper WWE promos. If you've never seen Piper house show promos from about 84, 85 in WWF, he is on a different level in these promos, wasn't he? He definitely was. I remember at at the time, it's not that I didn't like the promos, but I didn't like the fact that the main event was now a Piper's Pit with Bruno Sammartino. And they did this at Madison Square Garden. They did this at the Boston Garden. Like, I wanted a wrestling main event. Yeah. Um, do you think that the reason why they did that was they didn't have as much faith in Piper as a wrestler and, and just um, wanted him as a personality? I, I am inclined to think that, you know what, at the end of the day, the, the live Piper, Piper's pits, they did draw. They did. They, I mean, there's no denying that. And remember when Piper comes in, what is he? He's a manager. Yeah, at first he was just a manager, and I remember when he first came in, I, I didn't understand what they were doing. I'm like, you know, did he get hurt or something? And, you know, I, I think people in in 1984 especially, people thought that the WWF was this well-oiled machine, and there was oh, a long-term no. plan, oh, and no. no way. They're they by the threw pants. spaghetti against the wall and, saw, <laughs> and whatever sticks, sticks. Yeah, you you look at Piper in that in that run, and he's kind of like what Way Watts would have treated Michael Hayes, you know? Yeah, Watts actually, had, yeah, Watts had Michael Hayes more as a mouthpiece, 
guy outside the ring and let Terry and Buddy do the work. But yeah, that's true. You know, and I, um, a strong worker though. Yeah, Piper. I mean, he Piper. He had a certain match that he could work, and. It, it, that worked out well, but I mean, you know, Vince, I mean, Piper was already a huge star when Vince brought him in, and I think Vince and the WWF utilized him extremely well, and they protected him really well. They did. They turned him into an even bigger star, that's for sure. One of the biggest in the history of the business. Yeah, and he, you know, he didn't have to do a job at WrestleMania. Did he ever do a job in the WWF? Like a real job. Uh, well, later on, Bret Hart, Bret Hart at WrestleMania. Um, that's the biggest one I could think of. If he, he may have like did a house only... show job or, or, or job for like Andre or something like that, but he never dropped for Hogan. Those were DQs. <laughs> yeah. He never dropped for Hogan. That's for damn yeah. sure. So yeah. Until WCW. And so. you'll think about it. He lost the United States title in Crockett without ever having to do a job. Exactly. It was, they, they stopped the match for blood. Yes. Exactly. Piper was very well protected, that's for sure. All right, next is a different whole beast together as we go to the Southeastern Territory where we have Arn Anderson doing some of his earliest interviews and uh, getting into a brawl with Mr. Olympia. Now, Arn had uh, entered Southeastern as Super Olympia in late 83, and uh, he unmasked and formed the tag team with the original Mr. Olympia, Jerry Stubbs. Mm -hmm. They had a falling out. And uh, Stubbs takes the mask back, and this is a big-time feud throughout the uh, summer of 84 and uh, – well, not summer, fall of 84 in the uh, Southeastern Territory. And you can see right here watching this stuff that Arn had it. He had, he had the gift of gab. He had something about him that, you know, stood out. Um, do you agree with that assessment? I agree, and here's the thing. When Arn Anderson, and I'm about to commit blasphemy here, but bear, bear with me. When Arn Anderson and Matt Bourne came to Georgia, uh, I want to say this was like spring of 1983, I thought they were the most boring tag team ever. And I'm sorry. I, I know that sounds good on paper, Arn Anderson and Matt Bourne, but Arn was just starting out and was just figuring it out. And you know when they brought him in back in 19. 85 when uh, Crockett first got the the TBS spot and, you know at first I see he's getting pushed and I go oh, no I don't want to see this guy and uh, mind you I wasn't getting the sheets or anything like that I was on my own and week by week I just started to pick up on this guy like he's really good he's really gotten good his interviews were outstanding his ring work was really good he and Ole meshed well together and this point in '84, which I hadn't seen, you know, by 1985, I think I got this the southeastern tape. I want to say like '90, '91, um, but I could see Arn now putting it all together, and you know, he had greatly improved since 1983. And it goes to show you what happens when you're able to go somewhere, which is kind of a smaller territory, and mm -hmm. able to have a chance to spotlight everything you, <clears throat> that you have. Instead of you know working on national television with TBS, which regarding Arn and Bourne, Paul Ellering was their manager and he was doing all the talking. They were just in the ring working. You know they were kind of like um, how the revival are on WWE television right now. Very strong, solid team. Um, but you know that's it. 
you know, nothing dynamic about him other than Matt Bourne's bad die job. Because that was a bad <laughs> die job. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Arn goes to Alabama and he just finds himself in that territory with all those great promo guys. I mean, surrounded by the Fullers and Jimmy Golden and Jerry Stubbs and guys like that, you're going to get better. And Jerry Stubbs, that's a dude who he's, he's one of my all-time most underrated guys. And I think that if he would have dedicated himself more to the business, because he did have an outside job. He was a police officer you know, in Metro Atlanta. If he, oh, decided, well. if he decided to like really fully dedicate himself and want to uh, stay outside of the southeast area, he could have been a much bigger star in the business, couldn't he? I think so. He was a little bit undersized, and he, we talked about this the first time I, I was ever on one of your podcasts. He was a guy who needed that mask because he just didn't have that I don't know I don't know what else to call it facial charisma. He looked very bland, balding. but when he put on that mask, it, it worked. He was balding, you know. Everybody, the, his nickname in, in the territory, he was unmasked, was Chrome Dome, <laughs> <laughs> and it was always funny because. Basically, when Jerry Stubbs had the mask on, he's a baby face. But when he's unmasked, he's a heel. That's how it worked out, basically, most of the time when he was there. All so, right. Well, yeah, but he had to run him in South, though. And, you know, in 82 and 83, that was tremendous. Yeah, teaming, I really liked that feud with Mr. Wrestling, too. Yeah, teaming with Dog and then turning heel and being a part of the Rat, you know, with the rat Pack at one point with DiBiase and Bundy. And, yeah, he, Jerry Stubbs is a tremendous worker. No, I agree. Also... Alabama. Here we have clips of a Ric Flair world title match against Austin Idol. These two guys will have uh, matches in this territory on multiple occasions, but you really don't think about Flair and Idol as being one of those matches, but they, I mean, they did have some pretty decent chemistry with each other and what we saw from their, their matches. Yeah, I saw this match fairly recently, like I want to say maybe six months ago. And it was good, and it was interesting because it was outdoors. And I asked my friend Bo James, you know, do you know anything about this? And he was like, yeah, you know, a lot of the time they would have shows outdoors in that territory because it was so damn hot indoors. And that yeah. totally made sense. Exactly, yeah. You know, when the sun goes down, you have a nice <laughs> southern summer night as opposed to being in a, in a building that the sun has been beating on all day, and they didn't have air conditioning. Exactly, yeah. Especially someone like Mobile and uh, Dothan, when you get down in, in the southern part of Alabama, it gets really hot down there in the summertime and then early fall. So yeah, I mean, not? I have been in you know ice arenas in the summer for wrestling shows, you know, up here in New England, and it can be really hot in those buildings. So I can imagine what it must be like two thousand miles further south. And some of those old armories and stuff. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And then we also have also Flair and uh, matches match in Alabama where he loses to Bob Armstrong. Now this match takes place in between title runs in between Flair's first and second run. When, when Harley's the champion, they brought Flair in Bob got a clean pin over him and uh, they would show this on, on television after that to prove that yes, Bob Armstrong can beat Ric Flair and stuff like this happened in a lot of territories. Uh, I always dug it when they would when they would bring in the guy who was a world champion and then bring him in and he would actually do business and do a job for the top guy in the territory. That that way if, you know, 
when the guy would come back in, if he got the belt back, they would show this. I, I always dug that. Oh yeah, and it was it was routine by the time. I mean, before Terry Funk won the belt, they had him go all over the country doing uh, clean jobs to guys. And then when he won the title, it's like, oh wait a minute, I know Dusty Rhodes is better than this guy and can beat him. I've seen it. Ric Flair did the same thing in 1981, and apparently he did it again in '83. Yeah. Yeah, this is September '83, um, exactly. And uh, was Bobby Heel at this point? Uh, this was right at the end, either at the end or the beginning of his turn. Because I'm trying to think the timeline right. It's right there. It was in September. He turns in either September or October. But yeah, Bob. Is, okay. And yeah, he's fresh off of it. And it's a shame that we don't have a lot more video of Bob's heel run here because it is tremendous. The guy's smoking cigars and stuff on television. <laughs> I mean, he's full on heel. You know, he's actually feeding with his sons. Oh, it's good stuff. Yeah, you're right. It is too bad. There's not a lot more of that out there. Yeah, some on YouTube. There's a little bit here, a little bit there, and and what we do have is like a very shady video quality. It's like dark and it's not that yeah. great, but uh, tremendous stuff. More from the territory. Austin Idol brawls a boar Zukov, and Jimmy Golden pound drives Idol on a chair. This one, Idol was uh, pretty much the top babe face of the territory, other than Bob Armstrong. And uh, it's good with Jimmy Golden Boris Boar Zukov was, was good stuff, which leads to the, where Austin Idol gets jumped at a gas station. <laughs> and they actually go, go to the gas station. Rick Stewart goes over there and interviews people that actually saw this happen. <laughs> they actually That's shot great. the angle at the gas station. People saw it. They talked about how you know how bloody Austin Idol was when they had to go come get him. Great stuff. And like you said, it, it's too bad that I'll, there's not a lot more of that out there. But I mean, back in you know early '80s, late '70s, VCRs were a luxury item. They were not cheap. And it, well, the thing about the the southeastern territory was. You know, you didn't get the coverage in the after magazines at all, hardly. Um, and hardly. There was a, and there was like a reason for that. I mean, Bo James has told me many times that the Fullers didn't want that stuff out there. They didn't want people to know what they were doing around the country. They were worried about what they, their business, their their people, their towns, and they didn't want people to know what was going on down there. That's interesting. Yeah, Bo has to, Bo told me that you know he didn't want these guys becoming stars through the magazines because that way they're going to get taken away. So they just kept it quiet, and, and that totally made sense. Absolutely. And yet another one from Alabama here, Mr. Olympia versus Ron Starr, where Arn Anderson ran in, but Olympia beat him with a leather strap. Ron Starr, that's another guy, very underrated guy, uh, mainly worked just these these different styles of territories like Southeastern spent a lot of time in Puerto Rico, worked stampede, worked the Maritimes, um, did some shots. Big game in San Francisco in like the late seventies. Yep. So they seventy in San Francisco worked for Ole after this in 85. Ron Starr's a dude that could, you know, he's one of those solid Southern style guys could talk, could work, you know, didn't have the look for to be a major player, but he was a definite, you know, solid hand. 
Yeah, he was one of those guys that I actually wondered when the wrestling war was going on in like 85, 86, you know, why no one picked up on Ron Starr. I mean, a promotion like Watts or World Class could have used him definitely as a mid-card guy. And and that's not a knock, by the way. There are plenty of wrestlers out there who, you know, were starving and would have loved to have gotten that push somewhere. Yeah, he... He was, you know, he was being, you know, a top star in Puerto Rico, but, you know, hey, sometimes, you know, you may want to stay a little bit closer to home. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting how his American work was was scattered around. Yeah. This era, for sure. He kind, of, he kind of had that, you know, that Dr. D. David Schultz vibe about him in ways, too. Uh, and no, I, I, I never I, thought of that before. That's true. Yeah, I like Ron Starr a lot. Good, good, good talent. All right, next is one of those memorable moments. <laughs> this is a hair match from uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. Hacksaw Jim Duggan versus Hercules Hernandez, but it's not Hercules that's got the hair issue. Dr. Death Steve Williams was the referee for this match. Now, Dr. Death has been kind of been a heel, but not really. He's been feuding with Terry Taylor over the, the TV title medal in Mid-South, which... He stole. He wouldn't give Terry Taylor the medal after Terry Taylor beat Crusher Khrushchev for the for the title. So um, he's basically holding that hostage. Um, he costs Duggan the match, turns full heel. So they try to cut Duggan's hair. Well, the babyfaces run out and save Duggan and end up putting Jim Cornette in the chair. And they're going to shave his head. One small problem. The electric razor does not work. So the fans are about to start rioting here. Bobby Fulton gets an idea. He runs to the back, gets a big disposable razor, and they just grind into poor Cornette's head. They get some of the hair off, but nowhere near what they wanted to. This is one of those angles that was uh, something else. I remember the first time I saw it. Poor Cornette. Good Lord. What was your thoughts about this when you saw it? Okay, well, a couple of things. The um, the, the Dr. Death turn, which was – they were kind of in the middle of it, and I thought it was a really creative turn. He t- took the TV title, the actual medallion, away from Crusher Khrushchev because he, Williams felt like he beat Khrushchev and he deserved the title. And while they're working on a rematch with Khrushchev, Terry Taylor, that's right, that's Doc's right. friend, yeah. wins the title. And, you know, Terry's like, okay, Steve, you can give me the title now. And Steve would keep putting it off. He'd be like, oh, yeah, Terry, I forgot it. (laughs) (laughs) And just crazy stuff like that. And finally, Steve's like, you know, no, I'm keeping it. You have to take it from me. And while all of this was going on, they have the hair match where Doc, who's supposed to be a baby face, turns heel in the middle of the match. And yet somehow in all this fracas, poor Jim Cornette, this has to be seen to be believed as far as you know what they did to this poor guy to get that hair off of him. I mean, they just took this cheap, big, disposable razor, and they, they put shaving cream on his head, and they really didn't care how much discomfort he was in as they were just grinding this dull razor against his head. Oh, it had to suck. <laughs> had to Yeah, suck, I mean, it? you could see like the <clears throat> welt on his head coming up as they're doing this. Oh, yeah. 
But here's the thing, though. Duggan lost the match. <laughs> they gets forgotten about that, and he lost the match, and they reneged on the step. In New Orleans, which is this is not too long after the whole JYD Mr. Wrestling 2 deal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those deals where the fans can be happy, but still, you kind of reneged on a big step here. I thought back then, in that during that time, I think the fans were just happy that even though Duggan lost, he Duggan he didn't really lose in the in their mind. Yeah. He was cheated by the True. referee, and Jim Cornette is now getting what you know he deserves. And wasn't it funny? Now everyone think about the way Jim Cornette dressed back then, and now he's running around wearing a mask with those same clothes. It was too much. Yes, and, and following that up <clears throat> is a classic moment from Mid-South as Jim Cornette, wearing a mask, joins the Midnight Express as they sign a contract to wrestle the Fantastics. Oh, Bobby Eaton, I know what you're going to say. Yes, Bobby Eaton, this is with your words, Bobby Eaton cracks the Fantastics in the head with what may have been the chair shots of the decade. Great angle. Oh, they were. <laughs> He waffled those boys. <laughs> oh, it was, you know, it, it was back in the day when we were, A, a lot less concerned about concussions, and B, it was before the 90s when there were just no rules and everything was, you know, a, a broken glass death match or whatever and nothing mattered. <coughs> These chair shots, I mean, it sounded like a gunshot no, a shotgun yes. went off in the building, and this is a real chair whapping up against uh, poor Bobby Fulton's head. It was unreal. And Tommy, he gave it Tommy too. <laughs> no, Tommy got one too. The, the one Bobby got oh, really Bobby stood out. Yeah, and, yeah. They're, and they're wearing their t- white tuxedos too, <laughs> which are stained in red blood after this. But uh, to say the least, oh, what a, just tremendous stuff and. They would show this a year later when they did their potato video. Oh, that's right. To show how wrestling is real. (laughs) How their wrestling is real, unlike the WWF, who, I mean, they had Morocco, and it was the anti-chair shot, hit uh, Ricky Steamboat with a chair that obviously had been broken beforehand. It looked so bad. And I'm surprised they didn't they didn't take the time to just redo it. But once again, we're talking about WWF just throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, this Eaton just destroyed those poor boys. <laughs> this chair. This will get on the network eventually whenever they start, you know, uploading more Mitz out stuff because they ended right before this. So uh, when it gets up there, if you've never seen it, you need to check it out because he just kills those guys. All right. Also, Mitz South Butch Reed. Who me and John did a podcast on a while back. Objects to Brickhouse Brown calling himself the Brickhouse. And Brown somehow ends up on wrestling Buddy Landell. <laughs> Classic <laughs> Budro. Oh, yes. We talked about Butch and Buddy as a combo on the Butchery podcast we did. And uh, they're, they're right at their crescendo here of, of being awesome. And uh, Brickhouse is here because this is right after jyd leaves which we'll talk more about that in a minute but uh brickhouse was the first guy that watch tra- tried to use to offset that loss but uh yeah this is great stuff here isn't it oh yeah the i mean butch reed and buddy landell were phenomenal 
as a team, and their breakup was phenomenal. And I actually do suggest, I mean, if you you know enjoy the podcast we're having right now, go, go back in the archives and check out the Butch Reed podcast we did. I think it was about two years ago. Yeah. Uh, it was a solid, I want to say, three, three and a half hours of just an in-depth look at you know one of my favorites, Butch Reed. Exactly. And, and Buddy is just amazing here as his associate. Oh, yeah. And we talk a lot about that on that show. But uh, yeah, and, and go ahead. to this day, I mean, it makes me a little bit sad that, you know, Buddy just I mean, what happened with Buddy happened. He was about to get a huge push in uh, in the NWA. He had just won the national title. He was going to uh, dump J.J. Dillon and he was going to get baby doll. Yep. And, you know, they were going going to put him near the top. And Buddy just flaked out, and missed the TV taping and Dusty decided he'd had enough of him. Yeah. Yep, and this is Brickhouse's first run in Mid South because he would leave and come back. So, uh, yeah, Brickhouse Brown's an interesting guy too. Brickhouse Brown, um, known for a lot of the stuff he's done outside the ring and shoot interviews in recent memories, but uh, he was a guy that he he could do things. He had charisma and had great look, and uh, thinks he should have been bigger in the business. Maybe he should have. But um, you know, I thought yeah, he absolutely should have. Watch well, you know, let, Let's be honest. It, it, you're on WTBS. You're watching wrestling, and it is almost literally nothing but white guys. And that's just not the makeup of American sports in the mid '80s. And to me, I, if Dusty, I felt like should have taken a look at a guy like Brickhouse Brown, who was available in like '85, '86, and brought him on and done something with him. He was pushable. Yeah, because let's see, in, in Crockett at that time, you had Lopez Watley, who's not really doing much of nothing. Rocky King, uh, just a jobber. Yeah. And they were doing that little Jimmy Valiant deal with King in '85 with Midnight's, but that's true. other than that, yeah, that, I mean that's that's it. Thunderbolt had just <laughs> left, but that's Thunderbolt. So that's Thunderbolt. <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, mean to me, you, know, you have to. I mean, you're you're promoting in the South, and you know the the, the black athlete is you know you, you if you tune into an NBA, NFL, any kind of sport. You know, there's going to be a certain percentage of black athletes. Your sport should reflect that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, well, they didn't, and they should have. I mean, if it, if it wasn't going to be Brookhouse Brown, it should have been someone else or at least at least a couple of other someone else's. Exactly. Bunkhouse match, speaking of Dusty. Uh, Dusty Rose and Hacksaw Jim Duggan versus Butch Reed and Hercules Hernandez from Tulsa, August 1984. And as you note here, Dusty does a clean job. Yep. Speaking of few and far between clean jobs, here's Dusty here doing a clean job for uh, Butch. And it was recorded. Yes. It wasn't one of those things where you can just tell him, hey, you know, no one will see it except for the, you know, 10,000 or whatever people that showed up in Tulsa. Absolutely. Um, the one thing I love always in Mid-South was when they would show the uh, house show matches on that Power Pro, Power Pro and stuff. And then... Once Watts started selling the videos online, his uh, ex-wife and son Joel, then we got all of it, you know, in the in the master yes. form. And man, there has been some great revelations on that footage that's come out. And WWE Network recently, um, just days before we record this, actually released um, New Year's Eve '85 from Oklahoma City, 
uh, some matches from that, which is, I think, DiBiase Murdoch, Butchery, but Sawyer Dog Collar match. I think Doug and Slater got released. So that's encouraging that they put that out there because there's a lot of great stuff on, on, that, on that footage, man. Totally. I was unaware. I thought that the only Mid-South footage from that recent release was the um, – the, it was Neidhart and Reed against uh, TAN2, which I've already seen. Yeah, they just put this out. Uh, days before okay. we this, yeah. Hidden Gem. One of the Hidden Gem things. So, uh, yeah, great stuff. Something for me to look forward to. And there was a lot of blood in this Bunkhouse match. <laughs> Dusty's wearing a white shirt, so, yeah. You know what that means. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Also from Mid-South, Bill Watts buries the junkyard doll for leaving Mid-South for the WWF. He never recovered from that, did he, Watts? Uh, Watts never recovered from it. Um, although, you know what? Watt, JYD, there's an expression in the business that, like, you know, a baby face, your very top baby face, which JYD was in Mid-South, after four or five years, it's time for something else. And if you keep the baby face out there for too long – your business goes down eventually, and business had gone down in 83 in Mid-South, and I think it was just time for something else other than JYD. Not knocking JYD, it's just that he had his run. Yeah, and he was already starting to work other places, too. So he, oh, he yeah. was starting to travel, but just leaving for the WWF, I think's the thing. And the way he left, that's not telling nobody and everything – that I think that was the big deal, but once just went on months and months and months on television, you know, just bearing JYD in, in ways. It's it definitely affected. Well, I remember this this specific episode, um, and this is when they made the announcement that Junkyard Dog had left for uh, and a place where the competition was a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. we all know where that is. And Watch proceeded to show footage. Of you know Butch Reed you know beating up JYD, humiliating him, pouring tar and feathers on him, uh, just dominating him. And Watts was like, you know, Butch Reed won the war. The junkyard dog has broken down mentally and just needed to get away from Butch Reed. Couldn't stand the idea of taking another beating from him. And it was like, wow. Yeah, I mean, you never saw like that where the heel would be put over that strong like that. I mean, and why? And JYD was no longer a draw in New Orleans. Oh no, no. I mean, you know, not to not to get on a, a huge uh, subject, but this is exactly why I think it, I I wish that it, it it had been watched. I wish there was an alternative universe where Watts got the WTBS contract. Oh no! If he had done, I mean, because Crockett. He, you know, we were talking about this on on one of my groups. Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson quit Crockett to go to the WWF, and Jim Cornette gets on TV and and, and introduces the Midnight Express as the two guys who would rather fight than switch. And supposedly Crockett said something to Jimmy like, "Hey, we don't do things like that here. Knock it off." And Watts was the opposite of that. As we all know, and I really would have loved to see how things would have panned out had it been Watts as Vince McMahon's number one adversary instead of Crockett. It definitely would have been a different dynamic, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and we'll give Watts the money. I mean, there's no telling. Definitely what, what could have happened, for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, Watts just couldn't get on a national cable network. Um, he, they wound up doing a good job getting on syndication, which was still a really big deal in the mid '80s. But it was just, it was too little, too late at the end of the day. Well, he was going to move his operations. You know, I mean, they were going to build I and mean, to go to Atlanta. That was the plan. You know, they were still going to run their territory, which God knows, ooh, to travel there. But uh, they were going to home base in Atlanta. Yeah, but he would have to fly those and, guys I mean, around. They had already, right before Watts sold out, he had a show at the Omni, which didn't do well. But you know, sometimes that's just how it goes. And uh, my theory with Watts has always been, if you look at when he sold the territory to. Uh, when he sold it to Crockett, this was like late April, early May, 1987. WrestleMania three had just happened, and I, I really, I don't know if Watts has ever said this, but I really believe that Watts took a look at WrestleMania three and he said, "That's it, I'm cashing out." It was the week after. <laughs> it, was it? Yeah. April fifth. April fifth, I think, was the day that it happened, and Mania oh. was what 29th. Yes. Yeah. So there you go. Week after. All right. Well, then it had to. You know what? In that case, I guess chances are it was in the works before we finally saw what the crowd was for WrestleMania. But then again, uh, probably right around early March, mid March, it sold out. Yeah, it was around April fifth. Maybe the week after that. It was in the early April, first second week of April for sure. All right. So yeah, I think Watts just took a look at what you know the money McMahon was bringing in nationally, and just said, "Look, I I just can't compete with this anymore." And I think he got off to kind of a late start, and it hurt him. Yeah. All right. Next, we get feud highlights of the Midnight vs. Rock and Roll Express in Mid South. This is building up the return of the Rock and Roll Express after they had lost a Lose Town match to the Midnight Express and was gone for ninety days. Yeah. And. uh the Mid-South version of Rock and Roll Midnight Feud is probably the best stuff, wouldn't you say, of those two teams against each other? Oh, without question. I mean, it was great in Crockett, but Mid-South – I mean, you know, Mid-South was something special. I, I remember when I first got the complete episodes of Mid-South Wrestling from 84, and be, they put – before they arrived from Memphis, Watts put on a couple of Rock and Roll Express vignettes. And when they finally arrived, their first match at the uh, the Irish McNeil Boys Club in Shreveport, the the girls – it was like the Beatles showed up at Chase Stadium. The girls were screaming over them, mm-hmm. and they hadn't even been there yet. Power of television. You know, they were promoting them on television, showing their, their videos, which, you know, Mid-South was starting to do the videos at the time, but these are the Jared videos. And, uh, yeah. I mean, that, that's basically stuff like that's what, you know – got Miss South really into doing their own videos, was was playing that type of stuff. Yeah, and the Rock and Roll Express never really got over in Memphis because of the fabulous ones. Exactly. And when they got into to Mid South, was, I was amazed at the at the reaction that the fans had to them. They were over out of the box. Oh yeah. You build some. I mean, over like crazy. You build somebody up, good. I mean, it works. It did. All right. Next, we go to Georgia for a few things. Terry Gordy, Buddy Roberts versus Kevin Sullivan and Mike Davis from uh, television in November of 80. Complete with the classic series of skits revolving around special referee Austin Idol and his four flat tires. Another angle. What an angle. Another angle that's been redone in multiple places over the years. 
And uh, the deal was is that the Freebirds refused to face Idol and Sullivan on television. So Idol picked uh, Mike Davis to be his partner. I mean, Idol Sullivan. And they, but they did get special referee, which turned to be Austin Idol. So TV comes. Idol's not there. And Gordon, they keep trying to put it off. Sullivan comes out there, and they just keep putting it off, keep putting it off, keep putting it off. Until the time to come and not put it off anymore. And Gordon's like telling Kevin, he's like, you, you know, he's just not going to show up, Kevin. You know, he's not, you know, you remember how he was because Austin Island and Kevin Sullivan had a big major feud just months yeah, earlier. Yeah, Austin had just turned baby there. <clears throat> yeah, so, you know, now they're getting along and that actually has a tag team. But, uh. Now, Idol had been in Georgia for years as a heel. And he had just recently turned babyface, and they put him as the referee. And Gordon was kind of like, you know, Kevin's, Kevin's out there sounding like Ted Kennedy. Gordon, I know the man <laughs> is going to be here. He gave me his word. Right? And he kept saying that over and over again. The people in Georgia must have wanted to kill him. But anyway, and, the, and they had this going on literally the entire hour. Every segment would start with, you know, Either Hayes saying, get in the ring, stop waiting for Idol, or Sullivan saying, the man gave me his word, he needs more time. And they, you know, then finally, Hayes goes, all right, boy, get in the ring and take your whooping. And, and Kevin just realizes it's been like an hour. He can't wait anymore for, for Austin Idol. So we're all assuming that Idol has just bagged out and, you know, because he's an irresponsible bad guy. But no. Uh, and, and I said, Gordon was great in, in selling all this, and they had the match, and all of a sudden, the match ends, Freebirds win, and they're cutting the promo. Here comes Austin Idol, <laughs> and his ref, you know, referee shirt, and like, he's and the fans are going crazy in the studio, and he's telling Sully, said, "Get the jail, buds, and get Sullivan, and let's get this match in the ring." And Gordon's like. And he has no idea what's happened. He's he's as casual as could be. Yeah, I'm a little late. Let's, well, well, but I'm ready. Let's go. Yeah, and, Let's go, darling. And Gordon tells him, said, the match started taking place. He said, yes. He said, I was just a little late. and had a little car trouble. And uh, Hayes eventually makes a statement and says, well, we could have you at four flat tires. And he said, four flat tires? I never said anything about four flat tires. Oh, just tremendous. You see Hayes like, uh-oh. <laughs> and eventually... Yeah, Idol came out and he said, yeah, I'm sorry I had a flat yes. tire. And and Hayes is like, I can't help you if you had four flat tires. And Idol's like, wait a minute. I didn't say anything about four flat tires, brother. And Hayes does that like panicked face he puts on yeah. and starts like pulling his hair back. It was it was outstanding. And of course, leads to a wild brawl. And yeah, this was great stuff right here. Great booking. Whoever came up with this fully. I mean, that's a great fucking job. And it got ripped you off. You know what I bet came up with it? I, 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 part of me thinks it's Hayes. If I had to guess who came up with the idea, it's Idol because he's the star of it, and he's the one who has you know the, the good lines. Could have been. I mean, the, uh, at this time, November 80, Ole's booking. It's a very short time that he's booking. He's booking between Bill Watts and, and Robert Fuller. So Ole's booking. And, um, yeah, I mean, Hayes had a lot of input from the jump on his stuff. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Idol may have came up with this. Somebody should ask him that, see, see if he can remember. That would, you know, going something. into a broader range, 
everyone – not everyone. People sometimes think that a booker just kind of heads off to his library and starts writing stuff, and okay, here's what we're going to do, and he just presents it to the wrestlers, and they say, okay – a booker is rained upon with ideas from everyone, from the wrestlers to the referees to the fans. Absolutely. Everyone has an idea, and some of them are good, and sometimes you use them. Absolutely. All right, next we get Ole Anderson destroying a war plaque given to Tony Atlas for being the wrestler of the year or whatever it was. This was an interesting feud. They feuded for like a month or two here, and they had a deal where Alexis Smirnoff would get involved, and then a mass of the Russian invader. And he made the comment about your kind can't be champion or something like that. Very, very racially uh, motivating angle here. Um, I don't know. I think one thing, too, while I'm on the subject of, let me make this clear, you know, Booker is this. And uh, whenever my friends and I saw stuff like that, and, I mean, prime example – in 81, uh, Tony Atlas and Hulk Hogan had a brief feud, and Hogan was like calling him boy and the brown clown oh, and crap okay. like that. And we're just like, you know, and this is 81, and we're a bunch of white kids in New Hampshire, and we're like, dude, knock it off. That is not cool. I just don't want anyone thinking, you know, seeing that and saying, oh, that's what people were like in 1981. Yeah. No, they they weren't. It, you know, everyone was turned off by it. Everyone I know was turned off by it. Yeah, it was it was different. I mean, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, <laughs> there's a lot of that going on back in wrestling those days. So really, you know. Oh yeah. No, it's just the way it was. Uh, this is thank God it's changed now, but it's it was a different time and place. That time. Yeah, definitely. All right, there's an AWA angle mixed in here, one of the few of the era. Bobby Heenan destroys Buck Zumoff's radio. Heenan is great here. Zumoff is horrible. Who's surprised, you said? <laughs> oh, Buck Zumoff. I, Buck Zumoff, I could not stand him. Even when, I mean, he was one of my least favorite wrestlers. And that's before his uh, sort of recent conviction. I had no idea about anything about this guy, except he was just a, a bozo who showed up on with a radio, and he thinks he's a rock and roll guy. I was always happy. I wanted to make he, have he didn't make him eat that radio. Oh, yeah. He was a hated person, Zuma. Oh, I never liked him. Never. No. I mean – and again, he has, you know, his out-of-the-ring issue that he's currently serving mm-hmm. time for. I mean, he could have been the sweetest guy in the world outside the ring, and I still would have hated yeah. him in the ring. Never liked him. All right, we go back to Georgia, and we have Gordy of Sullivan versus Island Sullivan, the clips from the Omni. Also, Terry, Dusty Rhodes in a couple of deals here. A wild brawl with Terry Funk. And um, Matt Ole Anderson, where uh, Alexis Renoff helped Ole beat up on Dusty. So there you go. I never understood Alexis Smirnoff getting a push. I mean, there were there were so many Russians in wrestling that he almost kind of watered it down. I just I just never got into that. Yeah, guy. Ivan would have been working for Croc at this time. Uh, Volkov is still in Florida. Florida. I mean, Chris Markov sucks, but uh, yeah, I mean, Smirnoff. I guess if you're gonna try to do a push a fake Russian, I mean, he's. The next guy on the list at this point in time, really. So, yeah, yeah, he was just always, always lackey, pretty much at this point in time for a little bit. So, 
No, that, that's true. Now we have a memorable moment here, which was shown on TBS as Junkyard Dog was coming in. It says Freebirds are on top. They showed the clip of uh, the Freebirds against JYD and Buck Robley where JYD got blinded by the Freebird hair cream. Now talk about stuff I wish we had in, fu in full form was Mid-South from that era during the blinding era and the comeback. But, man, this was something else. Now, do you know the story behind that? The blinding? Well, uh, everything that led up to it. Well, let me let me right. walk through it. Ken Mantell was, I believe he was the booker, and he was giving himself a big push. And whenever he won a match on television, he would take a pair of scissors, and he would cut a lock of the person's hair. And he would say, you know, I'm from Texas, and I brand them. Every time you lose to me, you lose hair, and you look in the mirror, and, and Ken Mantell did this to me. Well, then he has a match against Paul Orndorff, and he loses. And he suckers Orndorff after the match and cuts his hair. Well, now Orndorff is out for revenge, and Orndorff produces this hair-removing cream. So, And he is going after Ken Mantell with it. Well, Michael Hayes has a match coming up. I think the match in New Orleans was a hair match. Uh, the loser was going to get his head shaved. And Michael Hayes gets on TV and talks about how he saw Paul Orndorff's gym bag in the locker room, and he decided to make the match the, the hair shaving easier, he went into Orndorff's gym bag and borrowed his hair removal cream. And the way Hayes said it, I can't replicate it. It was so sleazy. It's like, oh, yeah, I just went into this guy's gym bag and borrowed something. So now we have this hair cream that the loser is going to have applied to them. Well, it turns out that this chemical that Paul Orndorff doesn't know anything about, but he's the one who brought it in. And by the way, Orndorff is a baby yep. face here. Uh, you know when they put when they put this chemical in your eyes, it blinds you, and that's how we got from point A to point Z in this whole JYD is blind thing. Yeah, man. Uh, they shot angles about this. You know, JYD couldn't see the birth of his child, and all this other stuff. And this is the angle that really made JYD a legend in that territory in the beginning of it. And uh, the Freebirds would you know bring this back numerous times afterwards, but this is the original, the OG, and. Uh, Robley's got a big hand in the booking of this, and uh, tremendous stuff, tremendous stuff. And it was. It was the birth of the Freebirds. They had just brought in mm -hmm. Buddy Roberts. Um, Buddy was getting a singles push, and they had Hayes and Gordy were the Freebirds, and they did a deal where Ted DiBiase pile drove Hayes and injured his neck, and now Hayes has a neck brace, and they introduced Buddy Roberts as the newest Freebird with Michael Hayes as the manager. When JYD was blinded, he showed up. He drove to the uh, the booking office in New Orleans, and Watts went nuts because if anyone – he felt like if people saw JYD not blind out driving around, it was going to kill the territory. So JYD got brought home in the trunk of Grizzly Smith's car. Amazing. And you know how dang hot oh. it is down there. I mean, supposedly JYD thought he was going to die the most horrible death imaginable. Oh, man. And knowing Grizzly Smith... And, and, yeah, and people were sending him and money. And Grizzly Smith, probably when the first time he had a human in the back in the trunk of his car, but... Yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. But yeah, he was getting all kind of letters, like you were saying. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, this was a huge deal. 
Definitely yeah. got over. He would go you know, he would go to his wife would go to the mailbox. He wasn't allowed to go outside. There'd be a stack of mail and people would be like, you know, I know what it's like, you know, here's five dollars, it's all I can afford this week, but there'll be more next week. I mean, crazy stuff like that. Uh, yeah. But that's when that's when people, you know, believed and that's when guys, you know, protected the business. Absolutely. Next we get a match, this will be for the national television title, Bobby Eaton versus Steve O. And uh, I remember when I was first getting going online, uh, you know, and doing research, uh, I never knew that Bobby Eaton worked for George Championship Wrestling in this era. It was shocked to me. And then I saw him as a national TV champion. I was like, whoa. And then I finally got the, you know, finally got footage from you. And I was like, amazed. I was like, wow, look at Bobby Eaton. Because I knew he worked in Memphis. I knew he had been a singles guy. But I didn't even know he had this stint in Georgia, and this is really cool stuff to see him here in, the, in this point in time. It was, and you know, Bobby Eaton, I mean, he's, you know, put on a pedestal by people because he was such a great worker, only because he was such a great worker, and it showed even in his Georgia appearances. Exactly. You can see, you can see he had something there, and they, they put him in the hunt, because there was like this, this group of guys that was battling for the national TV title. You had Bobby Eaton, Steve-O, Kevin Sullivan, Steve Kern. These four guys were tra- were like trading the belt back and forth with each other, and um, yeah, it was a good little thing they had going on. Now Steve O, they eventually put the national heavyweight title on him, and they thought a lot about Steve O. And then Steve O had this freak hand injury that put him out of action for well over a year and a half, and he never was the same. It was a staff infection? Yeah, staff I think. infection. He was never the same after that. But man, they pushed him hard for a while here on at TBS. They saw a lot in Steve O. Yeah, I always felt he was a little bit overpushed. Um, I'm not saying he was bad or anything, but you know, he was what he was. He was, you know, a good-looking guy, but he was kind of bland. And you know, that's it. I mean, he, I, he is what he was in the AWA. He's a Ganya type face. I mean, he yeah. fits that profile of a of a burn Ganya baby face, but it kind of didn't resonate as strongly in Georgia. When you had guys like Tommy Rich. No, it didn't. You know, Ted DiBiase. And guys like that. You know? Yeah, guys who showed fire, pardon the pun, with Tommy Rich, and guys who could do yeah. interviews. Exactly. All right, next we get clips of a World Heavyweight title match. Harley Race defending against Tony Atlas at the Omni. And Tony's a George Heavyweight champion at this point in time. And uh, Tony Atlas' guy at this, you know, here he's... He's a guy that's split in time in, in, in multiple places. He's working for George Jackson Wrestling. He's doing shots for WWF. He's going and doing shots for Paul Bosch. Um, he was in demand. He was a big-time star here in this time period. He definitely was. And, you know, I remember when Tony was with the WWF in um, – uh, this is 84, 85, 86. Um, actually, no, this is this is like 85, 86. They did the deal where um, the Heenan family cut Andre's hair, and they had a match on Saturday night's main event. It was Andre and Tony Atlas against I think it was I think it was Patera and uh, John Studd. I could be wrong. It could have been Studd and Bundy, and they just made Tony Atlas look like the weak sister out there. I just remember being stunned and being like, this is Tony Atlas. He's a huge star. What happened? Drugs. (laughs) And his demons. 
Yes. Um, which you open, open talks yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we I didn't have access to that information, yeah. but it, it just at the time, but it just goes to show you how big a star Tony Atlas was at one point. I mean, I could have easily seen him wearing the NWA title when he left WWF in '84 and went to work for Vern, and then he comes back to WWF right after that. Immediately, they were humbling him then, you know. It was yeah. basically a punishing thing, and that, and that's when he really started having his problems too. It was a, a, a perfect storm of things bad for him. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, I remember seeing him when he was in world oh. class in like eighty six, eighty seven, and I, I couldn't believe it. And I'm like, you know, he's Tony Atlas. He's pushable, and the NWA should bring him in. You know, without knowing what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, exactly. He should have. He should have been somewhere where he could have been been able to uh, to shine a little bit for sure. Because he still had he still had talent in '84. I mean, he's still great shape, but just wasn't to be. But this is this is probably him at his best in this era right here. Definitely in the, in 1980, early '81. '80 '81, I agree with you. Next we get Bruiser Brody doing a commercial for a St. Louis car dealer. Brody would do a furniture store commercial. He did commercial car dealer. Um, and it was cool to see Brody in that environment, basically being Bruiser Brody. Yeah, and he was over huge as a baby face in St. Louis. Um, and he had a, a way different persona there than he did like in Japan or in Georgia. So it worked. Absolutely. And following that, we get Ric Flair and Holly Race in Kansas City for the World Heavyweight title in 84. Missing Link attacks and bloodies up race for the match. Typically a great match between two legends. Missing Link breaks his pin and saves Flair's title, three and a half stars. There was an interesting relationship with Flair and, and the Link here because this happened in World Class too. You yeah, beat me to tell it. that story. Um, they did an angle where Flair was going was wrestling the Freebirds. Uh, I haven't seen this for for a while. And he and Flair was the babyface in this scenario, and he brought out the missing link to even the sides, which was every bit as bizarre as it sounds. Yeah, and it was like right around the same time as this. It's like it was weird, a weird connection there between Flair and the link. Yeah, I. And, and Flair, I think this was right around the time he had lost the belt to Kerry, and. You know, Flissa, which obviously makes Flair a big time heel in world class, except on this night, he's the babyface because he's against the Freebirds and they're ganging up on him. And of all people to bring out to even the sides, the missing link. Like Rick Flair and the missing link, I just can't see that tag team, but here <laughs> yeah. it is. Yeah, and you gave you gave this, uh, well, I don't know if it's you gave it, but it's uh, three and a half stars on this match. This was a really good match for Candace. It's Harley Race's stomping grounds, Harley Race is the babyface. So you got a different dynamic here than your normal Flair race matches. Yeah, totally. I mean, obviously Harley was the man in Missouri, and he was a top babyface, and you know they were going to use <coughs> Flair to, to keep him over in that position. Absolutely. Next, we get Terry Funk and Billy Jack Haynes having words on the set of Championship Wrestling from Florida. Do you remember what exactly prompted this? Let's see if you ever see if you can remember this. Oh, was it? Did you say Terry? You, Funk? you got this, Terry. Okay. Oh, but it had involved um, Dory too. Was this too. the time? 
Okay, I, I don't remember anything with Terry and Billy Jack in Florida, which isn't to say it didn't yeah. happen. But I do remember an angle where Billy Jack had basically just gotten there, and Dory Funk was doing an interview, and Billy Jack naively stumbles out and says, you know, Dory Funk Jr., you're one of the greatest. I want to shake your hands. Next to Dusty Rhodes, you're the greatest wrestler ever. And, you know, it's like, of course Dory's not going to take that lying <laughs> down. And Dory, Dory starts slapping him around, and the feud starts. Yeah, and I think it was from Texas. I think it was the second greatest ref besides this to come out of Texas. Okay. Which may be right. even worse. And of course, that's like the most <laughs> left-handed compliment known to man. Oh, man. And Dory, this is when Dory's got that whip. This is when he comes back yep. from his run booking for Crockett. And he's in Florida for a short time. And uh, this is right before Billy Jack goes for his one night with WWF. But uh, that's another guy. Huge star in wrestling at this point in time, Billy Jack. Yeah, Billy Jack in 1984 looked like he was going to become, I mean, a huge star. Um, He got the big push in Portland. Dusty brought him in. Dusty elevated him to... I mean, he was Dusty's sidekick in Florida for a little while, and you know, then he went to the WWF. They had big plans for him. I'm not ex- exactly sure what. Probably neither did they, but they put him on the program, um, and for whatever reason, they put him on the cover of the program along with Wyndham and Rotundo, and they were like, you know, these are the, the next generation of superstars, and Billy Jack disappeared. One day and left. Now, did he ever wrestle, or did he just show up and do promos? Wrestled Jerry Valiant in Chicago. Okay. And the reason – Because they had vignettes with him walking around with a horse saying that he didn't drink or use drugs. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's funny in hindsight. Uh, The reason why he left supposedly was they didn't uh, hire Stan Stasiak to be an announcer for Maple Leaf. They announced – they they hired Angelo Mosk instead. That, I have never heard that story before. If that's true, that's the craziest thing yeah, I've ever we, heard. We, we did. A, we talked about Matrini Sheets. Uh, Stasiak was Billy Jack's mentor, and he was trying to get him a job in the in WWF in that job particular, being the color announcer for Maple Leaf Wrestling. And uh, they interviewed him and everything, but uh, Billy Billy starts up, and then they hire Mosca and they screw over Stasiak, and he's like, "Fuck this!" He quits. Yeah. Wow. I had ne- I had never known why he left WWF. I mean, nothing against Billy Jack, but you know he went on that tour for about a year and a half, where he would start up someplace and walk out. Yeah, he burned a lot of bridges, and like like no other wrestler I've ever heard yeah, of. He, he did a lot of that in this, in this era, that's for sure. Kevin Sullivan, Dutch Mantel up next, and a match from uh, Memphis Television '81. Always fun seeing Kevin Sullivan pre-Devil gimmick. And he is in amazing physical condition here in this run. Yeah, Kevin was an interesting guy because he was one of the first wrestlers. Uh, he was part of the WWF when I first started wrestling, watching wrestling. And he was kind of, you know, a little bit pudgy. looked like a, uh, you know, just a, uh, looked like a kid from, I don't know, Norwood who had a bench press in yeah. his basement. And you know, then he goes to Memphis and he does that transition where he gets heavy into bodybuilding. And he looked, you know, he was always short, let's face it, but he had quite, he was ripped at this point. Yeah, he started that in Georgia, the early, and, and, he, and Tony Atlas talks about how he's the one that got Kevin really involved in it because, remember, they were a tag team in 80. And That's right. The famous ether angle. And 
you can see Kevin's body is changing throughout the year. And then they turn Kevin heel and he's just, he's just ripped to shreds. And Kevin actually wins Mr. Tennessee at the, in 81 in the bodybuilding. Well, yeah, they I showed know the, that. They showed the video on Memphis television of him competing in the tournament. And uh, he wins, wins Mr. Tennessee because Kevin was kind of based out of Knoxville a lot of this time. And, of course, after Memphis, he goes to work in Knoxville for uh, Blackjack and Flair. But uh, uh-huh. yeah, him and Wayne Ferris. But, uh, but yeah, it was fun seeing Kevin in Memphis in this time period. It's remember the first family, which we'll talk about them in just a few minutes. But, uh, but yeah, uh, good stuff. Good stuff. Memphis, tremendous run in 81 here around this time period. That is something that I wish there was a lot more footage of, that uh, Flair and, and Mulligan, uh, when they owned oh, Knoxville, know. because they're just tiny little bits and pieces out there, and you just you want to con- connect it all together. They got coverage in the After magazines, and I was kind of like, you know, what's going on here? And I've got bits and pieces of information, but I would love to see oh, that absolutely. television. And there's like a little bit, but yeah, not much, not much. All right, uh, Terry Funk then shows up at the Memphis studio for the first time, going wild and beating up jobbers and swearing revenge on Jerry Lawler for the infamous empty arena match. Yes, Terry with the patch over his eye. Beating up everybody. Uh-huh. Wild and crazy. And it was the first time we had seen Terry since the, the infamous empty arena yes. match. And he was nuts. <laughs> He's been on the nightmares. <laughs> <It> heels. <laughs> Just great stuff. Yeah, no honor amongst these. Now, what do you th- what do you think of the empty arena match? I'm oh, sure you've well, seen yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it. Uh, we did it on the, on the uh, one of the previous shows. I mean, it's one of, the, one of those things that I, I when I saw it, I just couldn't believe it, you know. And it was just an amazing spectacle that it's it's something to think about because they talked about a time that nobody even talked about it. You know, it, when it, it became something of a thing, when tape training became a thing. Oh yeah. It was just like, yeah. And yeah, now I do remember we did yeah. talk about it, but it, it, it's just a very polarizing thing. Like, you know, you either love it or you love hate it. it. And I mean, hate it. Oh my God. It was so stupid. The stupidest thing ever, but I'm one of those I people love who loved too. it. Lance Russell smoking. I can, can't beat that. <laughs> All right, uh, and speaking of Lance, a hilarious skit here is Lance interviews Jimmy Hart and his charges at the first family picnic. And you note that Hart seems to be half in the bag, which, we, as we know with Jimmy Hart, he wasn't drinking. Because Jimmy Hart is one of those guys who's never drank. He did a great job of playing like he was yeah. drunk. Yeah, I mean, not like drunk, drunk, but just a guy who's had a few at a party and is, is a little bit over Well, he mentioned it. He said, ooh, I don't know what's in this punch. <laughs> I mean, but, but, but yes, Wayne Ferris, Kevin Sullivan, and the Nightmares, and they're basically going over their dream matches. And it was a cool segment. You see Lance is probably outside the TV studio somewhere or Jerry Jerry's house or wherever, and they're doing this this deal where he's interviewing the heels and trying to get their dream match. And um, it was great. Great, Sammy. Jimmy and Jimmy. Memphis, re- Memphis had such great visuals, um, one of which was we go into Jimmy Hart's office, and we would see the place would be uh, – all the walls would be covered in pictures of Jimmy and all the wrestlers he's ever managed. And another great visual was this thing with the dream match because – it's it's like okay you've got these five heels all in Jimmy Hart's family 
and they're just hanging around together like you would assume they would once the television cameras turn off. And here they are, you know, outside, hanging out, having a few, and the nightmares are wearing their <laughs> masks. And I thought, of, well, of one's course they are. Shirt, one's not. But it, yeah. Great. And like I said, it was just a <laughs> tremendous visual. Like, oh, this is what life is like with these guys outside of the yeah. ring. And of course, it's all fantasy, just like wrestling is, but it was an extension of that family, just like Jimmy Absolutely. Hart's office. Next, we get a match, which I hope one day, one day, the WWE Network will put up in full. Loser leaves town, steel cage match, Kerry Barnett, Michael Hayes, Reunion Arena, Thanksgiving night, 1983. You say, great match, brilliant finish, four stars, and they only showed half of this. Basically, on television. Yeah. It was tremendous. <laughs> yeah, and I've talked about this before. We are in month – we've done the Freebirds versus the Lonerics for 11 months now. Uh, Michael has lost the Loser Leaf Town match on Thanksgiving night. Gordy and Hayes were about to lose their Loser Leaf Town match. And as great as I thought the Von Erich versus Freebirds feud was, I thought it, was, it might have been the greatest feud of all time because it put the territory on the map for a little while. It went on too long, and I thought – that I, to this day, I think that the feud should have ended on this night. Michael Hayes should have gone somewhere else, and they should have brought in new heels. I agree. I agree. Uh, it would have been, uh, you know, they needed a different dynamic, but they couldn't. Once they had them gone, because they were uh, went to Japan, and, like business mm-hmm. tanked hard for those few weeks, and Fritz freaked out. He's like, oh, we got to bring these guys back. Well, yeah, because you're out there pushing like the super destroyers as the top heels and the missing super d's yeah devastation incorporated yeah i mean surprise business is in the tank and these guys don't even have a a storyline to be feuding with the von erics you know i was watching about a year and a half ago i want to say they dropped almost the entire year of 1982 of world class on uh wwe network And I got very excited because not only had I never seen any of that before, or I had seen very little of it, but it didn't get covered in the magazines. So I'm like, you know, great. I'm going to get to watch this, you know, 30 or 40 hour movie that that is world class wrestling that I never saw before. And I just couldn't get through it. It was, I'm sorry, it wasn't that good until the Freebirds arrived. It was definitely different. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Old school Texas wrestling, they said, you know. Yeah. I mean, I remember when Michael Hayes, uh, when WWE had WWE 24-7, and every month or so they would drop an episode of World Class, and they would be hosted by Michael Hayes and Kevin Von Erich. And when they were showing the the stuff when Michael Hayes first got there, like November 1982, Michael was always like, okay, hang in there. This gets better real (laughs) soon. He's like apologizing (laughs) for it. Yeah, because there's a lot of like uh, um, Kabuki, Magic Dragon, Checkmate, you know, guys like that on top. Bundy, Bundy and Irwin. Uh, King Kong, Bundy, Wild yeah, Bill Irwin. McGraw, Almadrill. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it just wasn't very good. And, and not only was the talent not, you know, that uh, scintillating, but the, there, there were no storylines that were interesting to yeah. me anyway. <laughs> All right, next we get Ricky Steamboat versus Dick Slater 
from Midland Television 84. Good match, no finish shown, because it's when those, we run out of time deals. Three and three-quarter stars. Yeah, Slater, I think we've talked about before. I mean, it's like, oh, we did talk about it. When he went to the WWF, and like it was like the, the Joker's magic machine that steals the surfer's yeah. talent. But Slater was Slater was unreal before he went to the WWF. Oh, yeah, he was great here in, in, in Crockett in 84. Tremendous. U.S. champion. And, you know, Steamboat is obviously on his way out, and the reason he left was because he didn't, want to be Dusty Rhodes Jr., um, like Magnum T.A. kind of wound up being. Um, Dusty went on TV and presented Ricky Steamboat with a pair of cowboy boots, and here, you know, here, Ricky, you're an honorary Texan now, and Ricky, you know, he didn't say it on TV, but he's like, I didn't want to be that. I, I don't bring out a lay and put it on Dusty and say, hey, you're an honorary Hawaiian. Yeah, yeah I know. Hilarious. So that kind of hastened that. That's you know, a big reason why Ricky kind of took on a major life change. He had been uh, in Mid Atlantic Wrestling for what, like seven years, eight years beforehand, yeah. and now it's time to go on the road with WWF. Mm-hmm. All right, we continue and go back to Alabama. This time a little bit earlier from the stuff we talked about uh, earlier in the show. As Arn Anderson and Jerry Stubbs are a tag team here, they're feuding with uh, Bob Armstrong and uh, Ron Fuller. And uh, the first match here, they uh, the heels pile drive the referee after the match. Then they have a match on television for the titles. And uh, Ron Fuller turns heel on Bob Armstrong in the whole situation. And then we have Arn and Stubbs facing Bob and Scott Armstrong. As Scott's going to be Bob's new partner. And Ron Fuller interferes there. Um, Ron Fuller basically tells the story. That the reason why he turned on Bob Armstrong. Was Bob Armstrong turned on him uh, in 82, cost him the World Heavyweight title match against Ric Flair, and he was a special referee. And this is his payback. Very logical book. Which makes complete yeah. sense. Yep. Exactly. Is Scott Scott's still a referee for WWE, right? Yeah. He's an he agent. Says in, okay. He's in a gorilla position. Oh, wow. Good for him. Yeah, he's one of the guys that's in, the, in that spot. But uh, Rob Fuller's wearing a mask at this time, too, folks. Uh, it's Tennessee stud wearing a mask, and there's a reason for that, as he's kind of the Jerry Stubbs situation. He's balding, <laughs> <laughs> so that's why he's why he wears a mask as Tennessee stud. But uh, this is really good stuff, man. Really, I mean, again, another thing in Southeastern, great storytelling. And Bob, yeah, I mean, I just wish I remember like we got Southeast from Knoxville on cable very briefly in early 1980. I, I loved it, and I wish there was more of Absolutely. it out there. Absolutely. Next, we get Terry Gordon and Kamala from Fort Worth in 84. These two had some fun big man matches in this era. Yeah, I didn't appreciate Kamala enough back in the day. I, I thought the gimmick was kind of goofy. Um, but when he was put in there with an opponent, a, a good big man, he had oh, good absolutely. matches. Absolutely. And also uh, from Fort Worth, Ric Flair versus Michael Hayes. And guess what? Ric Flair has a missing link in his corner. It's offset Buddy Roberts. As you said, uh, one Flair link connection is weird enough, but two on the single tape? I I don't know how I wound up putting those putting those two things on the same tape, but yeah, that that dynamic Ric Flair missing link. Now, duo. Do you, know, you remember the story about why Flair and Hayes wrestle each other here? 
Okay. I don't. This is the day after Parade of Champions. And the deal was the winner of Carrie and Flair would face Gordy in Fort Worth the next night. The loser would face Michael Hayes. That's why we okay. had Flair versus Michael Hayes. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. Missing link in Flair's corner. And Flair and Hayes, Flair and you Hayes was one of those deals where they would face off at different times and they had good chemistry against each other as well. They did. Um, even back in like, you know, when they first bought the UWF in 87 um, and the Freebirds were turning, uh, I, I thought they should have brought in Michael Hayes to do a major program with Ric Flair. They kind of did one towards the end of 87, early catch. 88. <laughs> Yeah, and then Hayes quit. Well, Who knows he's why? He's going to take the book but... in, in Dallas. Okay, true. And Dallas had such a rough 1987. Oh, God. I, I can't emphasize how bad it was. It felt like they were just trying to keep the doors open until Kerry could come back. And Hayes came in, and he really breathed a lot of life into Dallas. It was a completely different promotion, and Hayes certainly gave himself a lot of airtime as far as talking went, but it was it was far better when, when Hayes came in. Absolutely. We just talked about it recently on our uh, <coughs> Patreon show. We did a whole uh, – we did two parts on uh, World Class in 88, and uh, oh, my God, just a, just a tremendous breath of fresh air from that – turd of 87 good lord oh yeah and you know they tried some different stuff and hayes you know certainly was putting his ego over but there were some definitely some moments where he's you know practically in tears buddy you got drunk and ruined my concert man you know <laughs> yeah oh man all right next we get uh duggan and kamala from jackson mississippi may 85 we're at far burn duggan with a fireball very memorable angle this was tremendous television oh yes i mean duggan this is when you looked at duggan and you're like okay this guy could be such a huge star he did an interview um with his face i don't know what to make it look like his face had been burned badly but it was convincing to shave his beard off and he was just very soft-spoken he's like you know I know I'm a big man, and, and big men like me are not supposed to get scared, but I'm scared right now. I could lose the vision in my eye, they're telling me. And it was it was such a great he moment. He shaved half his face. Um, they did a lot of great angles with Doug and vignettes, interviewing him. And, you know, week to week to week goes along. I mean, it's tremendous television. And uh, – and Watts adds to it. He's like, you know, I'm the president of Mid-South Sports, but I can't suspend Skandor Akbar until there's a hearing, and then he won't let me have a hearing, so my hands are tied. And you know Watts, he's just boiling at this point. It, it was oh. so good. And this leads to Watts coming back in the ring. Yes. You know? Which he probably did one too many times, but it worked yeah. this time. Exactly. And yeah, we could talk about this for a while, but we don't have the time. So uh, maybe one, maybe this will come back up in another show, and we'll talk about it because it's really great stuff. All right, sure. then we get two rock and roll express matches here from Mid South as they're on their way out here in this in this time period. Dirty White Boys on television and Teddy Biasi and Doctor Destiny Williams, where they lose the Mid South Tag Titles in Houston in 1985 in a three and a half star match. DiBiase and Doc. I love them in this era as a tag team. They were awesome. 
they were awesome, and in a way, they almost came across more as a faction than the tag team. It was like Ted DiBiase was the lead heel, and Doc was the quiet muscle oh. behind him. And it was it was an act that, that transcended. They won the tag team titles, but it was an act that I thought transcended just tag team titles. They were totally awesome. I and agree one thing, with you. I just talked about this on another podcast recently about Ted DiBiase. I loved him in Mid-South because his thing was he had to have a title belt in Mid-South because that gave him the leverage he needed in Mid-South. To mm-hmm. I love that. I love when a heel does something like that. It says, i got to be a champion because it puts over the importance of being a champion and it puts over that the belt actually means something. I need this belt to achieve what I need to achieve. Great. Yeah, I- that is great stuff. One other thing I really liked about Ted DiBiase and Steve Williams, usually when a wrestler turns, all of a sudden, you know, everyone on the other side of the fence is now his friend, and everyone else on the other on the dressing room he just left is the enemy. But when Dick Murdoch uh, put the brainbuster on Ted DiBiase outside the ring. It wasn't, you know, Ted obviously was turning, but Doc was still his friend. And just because Ted turned, you know, Doc wasn't going to turn his back on him. Doc's a babyface too now, just like that. Well, Doc was still a heel for a few weeks because Doc was teaming with Buzz Sawyer and Rick Steiner while during the immediate part of that. It wasn't until they started taping outside Irish McNeil when they when they did that first taping in Oklahoma City. Which, of course, is Oklahoma and Dr. Death. And they put Dr. Death against yep. Buzz Sawyer in a TV tournament match. And then DiBiase returns at the New Year's Day taping for the, for the first time on TV. When they, after they had won the Mid-South Tag Toss from Gilbert and Nightmare, and the place was going ape shit for them. I mean, so, but yeah, yeah. It t- Doc was actually still a heel for a couple of sets of TVs after that. No, he he was, and I remember it felt like he was almost in a it holding yeah, pattern. Like he wasn't going to just jump into that into yeah, that next waiting. dressing room. It was wait, waiting for DBS to come back. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. All right. Next, we get a very famous angle. Magnificent Morocco knocks down Gordon Soli, and Ronnie Piper turns babyface by coming to the rescue. And this this was a huge deal because this made entertainment tonight. <laughs> yes, it did. Talk about how big this thing was, man. I mean, for me, I remember watching it live, and you know, I did not see Piper's babyface turn coming, even though in hindsight there were hints towards it. Like he was just a little too chummy. You know, you could tell Gordon respected Piper and considered him a friend. And well, if you if Gordon respects you, you have to respect Gordon, right? So Morocco is, you know, he's getting more and more belligerent by the week, and finally he's about to lay into Gordon Soley, and you're like, oh my god, but you know, and Piper, and he keeps pushing Piper away, and Piper comes to the rescue. I mean, I remember seeing it live and just going nuts over it. Absolutely, and Piper becomes just a, a mega, mega baby face for for that short time he's hanging around in uh, in Georgia before Oli fires him. Horrible decision, but. uh but Oli Oli says, I don't know if you've seen this, but I was I just recently watched Oli's shooter interview with Feinstein, where they asked him about you know firing Piper, and he said Piper showed up too many times at house shows, geeked up out of his mind on drugs. You see, he couldn't take it no more. 
He had to, he had to send a message. So he had to fire him. The, well, two quick things. The story I heard was that it was Piper and Tommy Rich who were showing up late and all messed up. And I, when I say late, I mean really late. They're having to you know, have matches go longer than they should be while they're waiting for these two to show up. And Ole felt like he had to make a decision on you know, whether this was going to be allowed to go on. So he felt like if he got Piper away from Rich, then Rich might straighten out. Now, yeah, that, that's I what believe, I heard a I long time that. ago. <laughs> I can't believe all that. Um, but number two, you know what? Ole, he just liked firing people, people it seemed like. There were just too many out-of-nowhere firings where you're just like, look, you know, everyone else can't be the problem uh, here. You're right. Ole's Ole. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. What are yeah. you going to do? And, I'm sure, and you know what? Running a wrestling promotion is not as easy as it nope. sounds. So. No, it isn't. All right. Two more things, and uh, we'll this show will come to an end. After one tape. This tape is so loaded. <laughs> Take one show. It really yeah, was. And we're not done. Good job, Not done this yet. Jake the Snake Roberts versus the Snowman at the Superdome in New Orleans on June 1st, 85. Featuring Muhammad Ali accompanying the Snowman to the ring and Jake selling some punches for the for the champ. Um, this was a big deal as well. Um, Ali had, of course, been at WrestleMania, but he's doing physical activities here. And this is when Ali could still do stuff, but, but his condition is starting to uh -huh. take a toll on him. He, you know, he can't really talk that good, but Jim Ross interviews him at his house with Bundini Brown, and this was a very interesting angle. And they're trying to—they're really trying to build Snowman up here in that JYD role, but Snowman flakes out. Um, but man, again, Ali, this is this is a big time star here. Oh well, I mean, Muhammad Ali—not anymore, but at one point he was the most famous person in the world. Um, he was, you know, obviously he's Muhammad Ali. He's a king. Um, and from what I heard, one of Ali's associates, and it might have been Bandini Brown, was good friends with the snowman. And whoever this person was was able to set things up. So, you know, you've got the snowman, and he can tell Bill Watts, "Hey, I can get Muhammad Ali to the to the Superdome with me for you if you push me," kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know what? I mean, if I'm Watts, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I, I'll do that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to push you to the top part, top of the roster, but, you know, I mean, TV title, and you're right there near the top. So the best thing Snowman ever did in his career than that Lawler <laughs> angle a few years later, but, uh, but yeah. That Lawler <laughs> angle was something, but from what I understand, and I don't remember any of the details, but, I mean, well, Snowman supposedly wasn't uh, – I mean, you know what wrestling dressing rooms are like, and you, even they didn't want a guy like him yeah. around. And to finish this off, and one of the, the more interesting moments of Jim Cornette's career, a series of Jim Cornette interviews from World Class revolving around the stupid green jacket angle he did with Scott Casey. Please talk oh, about no. the green jacket. Okay, they were doing an angle, obviously based on the Masters, where Jim has this precious green jacket that means so much to him. It means so much to him that he brings it to the wrestling matches. And um, Scott Casey has – Sunshine was feuding with Jim Cornette. Scott Casey was associated with Sunshine, and they were hinting that it was romantic. They weren't flat-out saying it yet. They went to, they went to Scott so Casey's house. And Sunshine opens the door, and it's like she's wearing, like, 
a long shirt and maybe nothing else up under it. So they're definitely yeah. hinting that. Yes. Yeah. So, and Scott Casey, he's a lady yeah, man. They're... But yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're, they they haven't, you know, flat out told you that these two are, are an item. But like I said, they're, they're dropping hints. And uh, they're also dropping hints that, you know, Jim Cornette might not be interested in someone like Sunshine or, or a female in general. <laughs> and um, so anyway, they do this thing where uh, Scott Casey steals the jacket, and every week they're making a big deal about Jim almost gets his jacket back, but no, you know, Scott Casey pulls the football away. I, 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 I thought it was, it, was, it was fun in a silly way, but I thought it was almost too silly. Yeah. And I tell you what's funny. Um, when when they go to Crockett, there are fans in the crowd at TBS Studios heckling Cornette about the green jacket. What? I missed yeah, it. You watch that, you watch it, and just listen, and you'll hear it. It's hilarious. They'll mention sunshine. Wow. Oh, there was a We Want Sunshine chant, a small one among some of the fans, which shows that they were watching World Class Course because it was on a. Atlanta Television on Pedicino's block. But um but yeah. Funny stuff. But, yeah. You know, one of the things that that kind of drives me crazy about eighties promoters is that they they all had this weird idea that the fans only watched their show. Like, oh I don't worry about that. Our fans don't watch that WWF stuff. Yes, they do. They you know, they're wrestling fans. You watch whatever wrestling you can get your hands on. And, of course, if the world class is on in Atlanta, they're watching it. But the, you know, the promoters just kind of deluded themselves a lot. Well, I'll tell you what, which was an interesting moment in that regard, was remember when Piper and Valentine had their first WWF meeting on television? And they I actually do. acknowledged their past? Yeah. And I, I totally remember that. And it was very smart because they didn't make the segment about that. But they acknowledged it, and it took 30 seconds for them to just, you know, okay, here's the storyline. This is out of the way. Moving forward. It made total it's sense. WF doing this now, <laughs> of all people. <clears throat> so, yeah. Wow. And I'm sure it was either Piper or Valentine's idea that, look, we are six months not even away from this, you know, blood feud we had in the Carolinas. Let's just acknowledge it, get it out of the way, and start doing what we're supposed to be doing. Absolutely. All right, John, that's it for us here. Uh, plug time. What, what all do you have to plug? Oh, not much. I have a weekly podcast along with my friend Sean Goodwin called Stick to Wrestling, um, part of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. I think if you just put Stick to Wrestling in Google, you will be able to find it. It is a weekly 60-minute show, and I am so psyched to doing the show that we'll be recording this week because we're going to be talking about the 35th anniversary of the Iron Sheik being the WWF champion. I've got a lot oh, to say I'm about sure you that. Do. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's hard to believe, man. Thirty-five years. Woof. Oh, I mean, <laughs> a lot going on there. That is a long time Absolutely. ago. And of course, you got your uh, the Facebook group, pro wrestling and whatever, which is always good stuff there. Yeah, and we have a stick to wrestling yeah. group as well. That's pretty cool too. And yeah, this week we talked about the we had Brad Breitzman on, a longtime friend of mine, and we talked about the uh, top ten wrestlers of the '80s. We each submitted our list. Oh, there you go. That sounds like a great show if you haven't heard it already. So definitely check that out. All right, when we All do right. our next show, we'll ho hopefully get two tapes done. Uh, 
but we'll be going back to 1981 for definitely the first one. So give you a glimpse of what we'll be talking about on the next show. We're talking about Vern Gagne's retirement featuring Don Rickles. <laughs> we'll be talking about Bruiser Brody and his path to rage in the state of Georgia. Bruno Sarantino's retirement. Terry Gordon and Jimmy Snook of the tag team. Ric Flair appearing on TBS the first time as champion. And tons more. So, uh, can't wait. Should be a fun show when we do that. Hopefully, it should be a good one in, in, in next month. It's back monthly again. So, be able to look out for that. Oh, man. You, you might, what a weird memory I have. Ric Flair showed up as champion on WTBS. The first time I saw it was October 3rd, 1981. That was the first day I had uh, cable wrestling. Or WTBS wrestling, there I should go. say. So you were right there, at the, at the, in the, at the, right there when it was going on. All right. Yeah, well, thank Thank you so much for having me on. I had a really good time as usual. Absolutely. And we thank you guys for listening. And so long from the Peace State of Georgia.